Wait on a second. Stop, stop, stop. Is it Rucker or it's Rucker, right? It is Rucker, Rucker. yes. Just, just like <laughs> Trucker. Trucker uh, without a T in the front. Or, or, or some other word if you really want to say <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's try it again. Thank you for tuning in to the Restoration Podcast with James, Evan, and Dave, where we restore yesterday's tools for the craftsmen of today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. How's everybody doing? Doing great. Thanks for Wonderful. coming back on. Yeah. So, guys, we have a very special guest tonight. Keith Rucker of VintageMachinery.com uh, is here to talk to us about all of uh, his, his story and and he'd get his perspective. I know all of us use that website on a day-to-day basis. We've all seen his website. He's a bit of a celebrity in the restoration community, and we're really excited to talk to him tonight. Keith, how you doing, man? Doing great and glad to be here. Thanks yeah. for coming on to the show. It's uh, it's an absolute honor. Well, it's, it's an honor for you guys to ask me. I'm, uh, I've been looking forward to this for the last week or so uh, after you guys invited me to do this. It's going to be fun. Now, Keith, we, um, as many of our viewers have, are probably already very familiar with you, but we do want to give you a couple uh, minutes here to kind of explain your story and, and how you got into um, the, the restorations and, and the work that you do, as, as well as your, your work as a, uh, a scientist, as well as your, as your day job. Uh, so please tell us how you got into this uh, this world of restoration and and how it goes for you. Yeah, well, I guess it really kind of started way back, uh, you know, high school or right out of high school. I've just always had a, a, a love for old things, I guess you could say uh, anything. You know, I guess when I was when I was a kid. Uh, what I really wanted to be when I grew up was a steam locomotive engineer. I mean, that was like, you know, when I was a little bit kid, you know, you want to be a fireman, policeman. No, I wanted to be a steam locomotive engineer. And uh, I can still remember the day as a young child when I was on a trip with my family and we were going somewhere and uh, we were riding along the railroad tracks. This would have been back in the early 70s. And uh, we passed a, a water tower on the side of the railroad tracks where it used to be where the steam locomotives would fill up. I mean, it was right, dilapidated, right. falling in, you know, whatever. And I got all excited because, you know, I had seen that on TV, you know, on Petticoat <laughs> Junction or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and knew what it was. And I told my parents, like, yeah, I want to be a steam locomotive engineer when I grew up. And, and they informed me that, that the railroads didn't use steam locomotives anymore. And it crushed <laughs> me. It just absolutely crushed me. <laughs> For sure, uh, but, but you know, I, I think back. I mean, it goes, it goes all the way back to a really young age. But really, what kind of got me into it was uh, when I graduated high school. My, my I wanted to go to college. Uh, I didn't have money to go to college. My parents really didn't have the funds to send me to college. So uh, I went to work, and and I was uh, looking for a job to save some money so I could go to college. And as luck would have it, uh, I ended up getting a job working in a little local machine shop. It was just a old school, all manual machines. Uh, we did a mix of production work plus a lot of job shop work. And uh, I was I was hired really uh, just kind of on a temporary basis. They had a big production job that they were doing, running a turret lathe, and um, needed someone for a couple of months. And 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 I was the guy they ended up hiring and. And I went in there, you know, and ended up working there almost three years before I did finally leave to go to, to go to college. But uh, during that time, I really learned how to start building stuff and making stuff and fixing stuff. We did a lot of, you know, people would bring in their projects they were working on and we'd make new parts for it and so forth like that. Uh, 
for me, it I just I took to it very naturally. It was just it was just something that that I just was a natural for, and it wasn't very long. And I really wasn't running the turret lathe as much as they had me just on a regular uh, uh, manual lathe, doing more job shop work that was coming in. And uh, that temporary job ended up, like I said, I stayed there for almost three years before I left to go to school. Uh, and I'm going to tell you guys, by the time by the time that I had worked in there for those years, the bug had bitten. I was absolutely just loving the whole uh, uh, metalworking and machine shop work and, and fixing things. And it really was kind of the catapult that uh, sent me on to where I am now. Absolutely. That's fantastic. And Keith, I remember when that video came out on your channel where you actually returned to the shop that you started at and you saw the turret lathe that you first started yeah. working on. I yeah. was... I was kind of upset when you didn't bring that home. I thought that would have been a great, you know, bringing it all together story. You should have brought uh, that turret lathe home, but that, that, that's a fantastic well, story. You know, if it was for sale, I probably would, but my old boss, uh, he, he wasn't quite ready to let it go yet. So he's actually still got a shop <laughs> running up there. And, you know, like, like most places, he's still, he's probably migrated more toward, you know, doing CNC work and so forth like that. Right, but he's right. still got a lot of those old school machines in there. And, and, uh, uh, that that machine meant a lot to him too, personally. I promise you. I think it was one of the first machines he had in the shop. And yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's anyway. Uh, who knows? I might end up with it one day. Fantastic. What what model machine was that? That was a Warner Swayze number three uh, turret Swayze lathe. Number three. Very good. Yeah. Awesome. Keith, tell us a little bit about your passion for locomotives, man. I, I love watching your videos where you're working on some of these old steamers, and uh, it comes through that you really have. A, I mean, and it's interesting hearing from you that growing up you wanted to be a you know a locomotive man, you know, run the rails. How did you get involved with the museum and with and working on those machines? Well, ironically, you know, I mentioned that after working a couple of years uh, in the machine shop, I went to college, and when I did go to college, I ended up coming down to a little small. Uh, it was a junior college at the time. Uh, down in South Georgia, uh, in Tifton, Georgia, where I live now. And uh, ABAC, Abraham Ball Agricultural College, was the school. And a great college. It was a small school, uh, a lot of one-on-one, -on -one, you know, with your professors and all that. But, uh, you know, again, not having a lot of money, I had to get a job. And uh, when I came down here, I actually qualified for some uh, uh, a work-study program that had some, you know, federal funding or whatever to, to help students who wanted to work. Uh, to get a job. And uh, I remember going into the financial aid office and talking to them and, you know, like, well, you know, where can I get a job working? And, and uh, one of them mentioned, well, the, the, the Museum of Agriculture is one of the, the, the places that qualified for this program. And I'm like, that's where I want to work. Absolutely. That is where I want to work, you know, and, and one thing led to another. I ended up going to work out at the museum. And uh, while I was a college student, I, I worked part-time out there. In fact, I worked I about, got about halfway through the, the my first quarter in college, and I had almost worked all the hours that I was eligible for. But the museum was so happy with me, they actually found me a second job, uh, actually working with the curator, doing some research on uh, some different projects. So I actually had two jobs out there, oh kind of God. split between working on the on the museum site and kind of working with the curator, doing uh, research on on different artifacts in the collection, and it. Again, it was one of those catapults that kind of really led me down the path to where I am now. Uh, but ironically, it was it was then. This would have been in the uh, I think in 1989 uh, was when I went to school. Actually, I've been out of high school for several years. But um, they had the, the the Vulcan locomotive uh, down here at the museum, and 
man, I wanted to learn how to drive that thing. And they, you know, they really wouldn't let me for a long time. I, my, my, <laughs> my, one, of the, one of the things that I've really started though, was I worked at the sawmill, which steam powered sawmill. And they taught me how to run the steam engine there and running the boiler and so forth. And after I'd done that for a while, I think they figured out that I wasn't going to kill myself or anybody else. And, and, and finally one day, finally one day they, they, they let me get up on the steam locomotive and, and you talk about a dream come true because that was my dream as a child to be a steam locomotive engineer. And, and while, you know, yeah, it's a little small, uh, industrial engine, not really like a mainline locomotive. I can, I still, I, I, I allow myself to check that box off my list, you know, there you go. Uh, yes. And for the last 30 something years, uh, I've been stayed involved with the museum and, and, uh, you know, help them out with a lot of different projects. So yeah. keeping everything running out there, including the steam locomotive. And, you know, like I said, I've been, been helping them out for 30 something years now. And, and over the course of that time, uh, they, they, it didn't take them long to figure out that I had worked in a machine shop and that I knew how to, uh, make parts on stuff after a while. And, you know, I, now I walk out there and look at that locomotive and, and it, it take me 20 minutes to show you all the parts that I've made for it over the years, you know, Fantastic. when something breaks down on it. Uh, and, that, and that's been a lot of fun, um, you know, because it's not like you can go down to the auto parts store and buy parts for that thing. <laughs> for sure, uh, yes. You pretty much got to gotta make them. So, uh, and I've, I've been very yeah. blessed to be able to do that. Yeah, let, let me guess. The first time that you got up on the locomotive, you probably you grabbed the whistle and let it rip for probably five minutes straight, <laughs> didn't you? Uh, everybody likes blowing the whistle. Right? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you've you've been doing work with with the Georgia Museum of Agriculture for some time, just like you explained. Uh, but you're also uh, working with uh, another museum. I I can't remember the name of it, but you're doing the Stoker Engine Project. Yeah. Uh, yeah for them. So, that, uh, that's very yeah. interesting. Tell us a little bit about that. I know you're in progress, but tell us a little bit about what's going on with that. Right. So that's uh, the Nashville Steam Preservation Society up in Nashville, Tennessee. They're uh, actually restoring one of their big mainline locomotives. It was a locomotive that was built during World War II, and um, um, it really only ran in commercial service for about 10 years. Uh, and then, you know, diesel came in and, and just kind of, it, it was just kind of discontinued. And in the, in the world of steam locomotives, you know, a, a locomotive that only had 10 years of, of road service, it's pretty low miles. Um, yeah, that's brand new. It, pretty much. So w when that locomotive was, uh, retired, uh, uh, the particular one they're working on was given to the city of Nashville and it basically was put into a park up there, uh, you know, just on display. Uh, fortunately, they built a shelter over it, so it was uh, pretty well maintained. And uh, a couple of years ago, the, the, they made the decision they were going to restore that locomotive and get it back into operating condition. And, uh, you know, for a locomotive, you know, for that age, and it was it was in remarkably good shape. Now, it still needed a lot of work done to it. Uh, but there is an active campaign going on right now. They are actively working on restoring that locomotive. Uh, you can go check them out on the Internet if you search for uh, – the Nashville Steam Preservation Society. You'll bring up their website, and uh, you can get updates on it or whatever. But uh, they reached out to me uh, at some point in time and and wanted to kind of do a collaboration with me. Uh, and I basically said, "Yeah, I'd love to do that." So uh, what they've got me working on is there's a Stoker engine that goes on that locomotive. And if you're not familiar with a Stoker engine, basically what it does is it's a steam engine. It's actually in the tender of the locomotive. It's not the steam engine that runs the, the locomotive itself, uh, but there's a mechanism in the in the tender, basically an auger that pulls the coal 
out of the, the, the tender that goes right behind the locomotive and it just augers it up into the firebox. Uh, by the 1940s, these locomotives had gotten so big and so massive that a fireman, you know, typically, traditionally you'd have a fireman and they're shoveling coal in the firebox. Well, these locomotives were so big and used up so much coal so fast that a fireman just couldn't keep up with them. So at some point in time, they came up with these mechanical stokers. And uh, basically all the fireman has to do is open a couple of valves. It turns the steam engine on. It starts cranking in down there and, the, and augers the coal up in there. And they could control how the coal went in, very similar to how a fireman would do it by itself. So sure. they have sent that, that stoker engine down here to me. It's in my shop. And uh, we've started the restoration project on it. And I'm going to tell you, it, it's, I'll, I'll be honest with you, it's, it was a basket case when it came in here. Yes, yeah, uh, I saw it, that. It, it really needs a lot of, lot of work, and we, we've started a lot of that. The project's kind of uh, somewhat <clears throat> been on hold the last couple of months because I've actually had a couple of things that I was not, I didn't have the right equipment in my shop to do it, so I've kind of had to farm some things out. But uh, right. uh, my friend Adam Booth uh, over at uh, Booth Machine Shop, uh, A-Bomb 79, I'm sure a lot of you guys that yep, follow yep. The, the machinist uh, community on YouTube know Adam well. He's actually uh, in the process right now. In fact, I was talking with him about this just the other day. There, He's getting ready to do one of the jobs that I need to have done uh, on his uh, shaper uh, to cut the, the new journals in there that the crosshead slides on. And the other thing I had to send out to get done was a crankshaft uh, that had to be built up and reground down. And obviously that takes some very specialized machinery. For sure. And uh, I've got a shop uh, not too far from me over here that specializes in crankshafts. And although I, he mostly does, uh, you know, engines for cars and trucks and diesel engines and stuff. He said his first steam engine he's ever worked on. Right. But, but <laughs> a, a crankshaft is a crankshaft is a crankshaft. Yeah, he's definitely so. set up to do it. So uh, uh, hopefully we're going to get those two parts back in the shop before too long and be able to kind of get back to working on that project and, and start putting that thing back together, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, that is, that is fantastic. And, you know, we've had uh, talks on the podcast before about, you know, how do you, you know, categorize and, and maintain an organization strategy when you're, when you're working on a project and, you know, we're, we're concerned about things such as, you know, the, the Delta bandsaws that we're working on and how do we keep track of the parts? I, I couldn't even begin to imagine what it takes to, to keep track of a locomotive and all the parts that are related to that. <laughs> it's a challenge. And, uh, I, I think one of my, I guess one of my downfalls is that I, I tend to have way too many projects going on at one time. I'm working on a lot of different things simultaneously and, and keeping track of parts. Uh, when you got 10 projects going on, I don't know how many active projects I've got out here right now, yeah. but it's, 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 it's multiples. Uh, but that's definitely a challenge. And, you know, one thing that I try to do is, you know, uh, you know, put, put parts in Ziploc bags. And I usually have a tub for each project, some plastic bins that I kind of keep things together. And I try to keep the parts, you know, from different assemblies together. Uh, one thing that's really helped me out is actually doing my YouTube videos. I'm, I'm usually filming something when I take it apart. And uh, I, I can't tell you how many times I go back and look at my footage. And, and one thing I always make sure I do, you know, I, you guys know from editing podcasts, a lot of times you, a lot of it ends up on the, you know, on the, on the floor down there when you're editing, you know, it doesn't really make it into the final cut. Yep. But I, I keep all that raw footage when I'm taking something apart uh, because uh, a lot of times I'll be going back through that and, you know, looking now exactly where did that piece come from? Oh, there it is. I see it now. Uh, 
Yeah. So, uh, that, that, that's one thing that's kind of helped me, you know, I definitely recommend taking tons and tons of pictures, take more pictures than you think you'll ever need, because I promise you, when you go looking at the pictures, you never have the shot exactly like you need it. Yep. Yep. That's so, true. So, uh, Very true. Just, just think of every possible angle you can look at it and, uh, you know, and then any documentation you have really helps you put it back together. And, and, you know, a lot of times for me too, I might take something apart and it might be a year before it goes back together. You know, that, that really, my, my memory's not as good as it used to be. So anything you can do to, to help remember that stuff uh, really helps out. Yeah. So Keith, one of the, one of the big things that we, we harp on on the, the restoration podcast here is that kind of like those nostalgia stories and, and you know, obviously you talked about where you got started and, and the, uh, the turret lathe that you, that you worked on, but, what was the first, let, let's say, what was the first tool or machine that you restored that you could look at it and be like, hey, I did that? What, what's your nostalgia story for that? Yeah, actually, it was when I was working in the machine shop. Um, and I, um, at that time, I was playing around with doing some blacksmithing. Had a little blacksmith shop set up in the backyard. Uh, I actually messed my shoulder up several years later and kind of had to give up the blacksmithing because the hammering was killing me. But, right. um, but at the time I was pretty active doing some blacksmithing and I had found an old, um, hand powered post drill. If you know what I'm talking about, it's a drill yep, that mounts yep. up on the wall. It's got a hand crank on it. You crank the crank and turns the chuck or whatever. I, I had found one, uh, in a, you know, junkyard, junk sale, whatever. Uh, did I it happen remember. to be a champion blower and forge model? Uh, I, I'm, I think it actually was a champion if I remember right. Um, it's been so long ago and, and yeah. I, unfortunately I don't have this, this tool anymore, but, uh, I, I'm, I don't even remember what happened to it, but, but anyway, I, I wanted to, I wanted to restore it. So, uh, I brought it into the machine shop and, you know, the guy that I worked for in the, in the machine shop, Virgil Williams, he, he was really good. We had, we had several young people working in there and, and he just absolutely encouraged all of us. He basically said, the shop is yours. After hours, come in here, do whatever you want to, uh, work on your own projects. And and really, I think it was one of the most brilliant things that, that a business person could do because really what it did is it encouraged all the guys in the shop to kind of stretch beyond what they were doing in their day-to-day job and, and, and really learn something new. Uh, you know, because now, now you've got kind of skin in the game. You got something that you're interested in working on and you got to figure out how to do it. So I brought that, that drill press in the shop and, uh, and I restored it. And that was the, really the first piece of machinery that I ever restored. In fact, I remember I, I was, uh, the, the, the two bearings that the, that the main shaft goes in, I had set it up on a horizontal milling machine. I'd rigged up a boring bar and I was going to bore all that stuff out and, and put bronze bushings in there. And I remember when I first started boring it out, there was this really soft metal coming out and I didn't know what it was. It's the first time I'd ever seen it. It was Babbitt. It was a Babbitt bearing. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, that was the first time I ever saw Babbitt. And, uh, you know, now I probably would have just reported in Babbitt bearings, but I ended up boring it out, getting it down to the cast iron. And we, we turned bronze bushings and put back in there and, the, it really turned out nice. And, and I had that post drill set up in my blacksmith shop for, for several years. And, uh, again, I, I, I don't remember whatever happened to it. I wish I still had that thing, but, uh, but somewhere along the lines, it, it went a different way than me, but that was really my first true restoration that I, that I did. Fantastic. I love, love to hear those stories. 
That's a great feeling. I, I got a question for you, Keith. Uh, and we started talking about this a little bit before the show. Uh, VintageMachinery.com. It's probably a day-to-day resource for most guys that listen to this podcast. I think every every interesting machine that I've ever found, I've gone onto that site immediately as soon as I got home from the pick, and I've been able to identify it. But uh, how did you get started with that site, and what was the inspiration for putting together such an amazing collection? Yeah, well, first off, I have to I have to correct you. It's vintagemachinery.org, not com. So oh, for folks, forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, if you're looking for it, go go to vintagemachinery.org. <laughs> but but yeah, so that website really kind of you know like most things, there, there's an evolution that happens over time. But back in the it was around 2000, 2001. I was pretty involved on a, on a discussion forum. It was actually uh, the old woodworking machines discussion forum. And I'm sure a lot of people here are familiar with that if you're doing any, you know, restoring woodworking equipment. But I, I was actually one of the very first people that got involved in that, that site when they first started, uh, when Keith Bone started that. In fact, he reached out to me and asked me to come over and, and join that, that forum. Uh, but sometime early on during those forums, uh, I remember I, I was doing some research on a, on a mach- machine that I picked up. It was made by Crescent Machine Company. It was a woodworking machine. Uh, don't, I think it may have been a joiner. I can't remember exactly what it was. But I had found some, some um, uh, sales literature on it, found it on eBay. And, and, and I had shared on the discussion forums, hey, I found these, these cool uh, uh, you know, publications and you know, this was back, I think, I think it was 2001, 2000, somewhere right along in there. You got to remember, you know, digital cameras and stuff really wasn't as prevalent back in those days, if you're, if you're old enough to remember that. So, um, you know, wasn't really able to share pictures of it as easily on the forums back in those days. days. And, but there were several people like, man, I'd love to get a copy of that. Would you make a photocopy and send it? I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll scan it. I had a, a little flatbed scanner. I scanned the document. And, uh, and instead of, uh, really sending a file by email, even back in those days was hard because we just weren't used to those big file sizes, but I made a PDF file and instead of trying to do it some other way, I just, uh, I just whipped up a little, uh, web, uh, uh, server in my house. Uh, I had a static IP address, uh, uh, and I whipped up a little, um, web browser on my PC, you know, our, our web server and, I created this really simple website and it had links where you could go download those, uh, those documents and shared it with the folks over on OWWM and up uh, so people started downloading it. And then it wasn't very long at all. You know, somebody say, Hey, I've got one I'd like to put up there. Can you put mine up there with it? And we kind of started this little collection of, of some, you know, manuals and, and sales literature and whatever, uh, over on this little, web server that was literally sitting in my house. And uh, one thing led to another. There was another guy on the forums at the time. His name was Jeff Jocelyn. He's still actually very involved with our website. But uh, he started a project, and he was uh, doing research trying to come up with a list of all the manufacturers of woodworking machinery in North America. And, uh, uh, you know, he probably, he, he basically just had like a Word document that just listed the names of all these companies in the town that they were in. And he came to me and said, hey, can you put up my list over there so people can go access this? Sure, I can do that. Well, it wasn't very long. His list had turned, you know, from a couple of hundred names to a couple of thousand names. And 
you know, 5,000 names and, and it, it wasn't very long. We decided, I actually put it into a database and um, I did a little bit of web work at web development work uh, with, with my job at the time and uh, started where you could like pull up a different manufacturer. And then we started linking publications to it and we made it where people could start uploading. And, and really the site just kind of evolved into what it has become. Uh, over the years. Uh, I, I can't say that I woke up one morning with this great idea and I had this big plan and I got it all planned out. No, it just kind of, it just kind of turned into what it has become. And, and it really has, I, I'm, it's one of the things I'm really proud of. And, 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 and let me say this, I mean, I, I cannot take personal credit for vintagemachinery.org. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of the guy that started it and I'm kind of the guy that stewards it and takes care of it. I guess you could say it's mine, but it really isn't mine. There, there is a community of people that really makes that website what it is. I mean, we've got a group of what we call our historians. Uh, I mentioned Jeff Jocelyn a while ago. He's one of our key guys, and there's probably another dozen or so people that are just constantly working on updating the site, you know, keeping the stuff up to date. Uh, we've got a place where people can send information in, so they, you know, they find one of our manufacturers and say, Hey, my great grandfather used to work there and I've got such and such information that you guys need to add on there. Uh, it's just constantly on, a, it's really on a daily basis being updated and new stuff being added to, and we're still finding new manufacturers. In fact, I was, uh, uploading some publications just earlier this week. And I think I entered two or three new companies that we didn't have on the, on the website, believe it or not. And that's fantastic. Uh, anyway, it's just, it's just kind of turned into, it's turned into a monster, uh, as uh, somebody once says, is you, you you can't you do a Google search and you can't can't uh, every time you do a Google search, you know one of the first things that comes up is vintagemachinery.org. Pretty uh, much, which, yeah, yeah, and and uh, that that's uh, that's a pretty good testament to to the site in itself. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, and that's that's it's just kind of happened. Uh, you know, anyway, I, I'm I'm proud of it, but I don't want to take all the credit for it because there's a lot of people that have really yeah absolutely made that into what it's become. It's a fantastic resource, and, and you know, uh, like you said, a lot of people can upload their own information when they find uh, pieces that that come with their machines, or they find it in, in an old house somewhere. They can upload it themselves. But it, it seems like um, oftentimes you're you're getting inundated <laughs> with, with thousands and thousands of pages of of paperwork that gets sent into you. And, and I know you spend a good chunk of time uploading those and scanning those. And, uh, you even have, um, your, your fantastic scanner set up that you use to do that makes things a lot quicker. Um, but where do you, where do you keep all these documents that you get? You have the originals (laughs) in like a, a vault somewhere. (laughs) Well, the, the, the stuff that I've, personally handled I'm, most of it I've still got and I've got a couple of filing cabinets a lot of them are in banker boxes I really need to get that stuff a little bit better organized uh, uh, because it's, it's kind of taking over my office right now uh, back in fact back earlier uh, this year we had a pretty major donation I think it was like 27 banker boxes full of stuff from a gentleman that he had passed away, but he used to be in a, uh, he did machinery building and I think he was kind of a buyer and seller of machinery and he had a huge collection. Uh, now out of those 27 boxes that we had, a lot of it was just personal files and, you know, stuff that wasn't, but there was a ton, a ton of manuals and catalogs and so forth like that. And, um, just, just an incredible amount of stuff. And, and I actually, uh, back during the summer, during when we were on the COVID lockdown, I had a college student that 
uh, we, we were able to hire and he came in and was doing a lot of the scanning for us. And, uh, I'm hoping I'm going to be able to get him hired back on over Christmas break when he comes back home, uh, so that he can, uh, we can, we can get some more of that on there, but, uh, it's, but uh, you got to remember too, I, I'd say that probably 80 to 90% of the stuff that's up on the site has been uploaded by, you know, just regular everyday people. Uh, sure, and, and yep. so of our other, other so we got a couple other historians who have really done a lot of scanning and, and with our kind of our internal team, but, uh, really a lot of it just comes from, you know, every, everybody out there, they come across a manual or whatever, they want to share it with folks. And, uh, we got it where you can upload stuff. Even if you're only going to upload one file, you know, we can, you got it where you can put it up there. Fantastic. Keith, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that site is, is honestly the, uh, the confidence I got to get into the big machinery. Um, like you said, the first thing most people do now is, is Google. And I was able to find a wealth of literature, but think seeing how many people are, are active on there. Do you have an idea of how many vintage machines are registered through your site? Serial oh, numbers? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Th- I'd have to go look. I haven't looked in a while, so I don't really know the numbers off the top of my head. Uh, but but there are some places where we can we can kind of look and see like how many machinery photos have been uploaded and how many uh publications have been uploaded i i want to say we're up to around 30,000 publications maybe wow, that are wow. up on the site now and it's literally growing every day uh you know and 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 it's interesting too you know the the growth has been somewhat exponential over the years you know it took us a long time to get to a thousand and and now it's just just new stuff being put up all the time jumps up every every day i bet yeah absolutely there's rarely a day goes by that you know there's not something new added to the site for sure so another uh big item that that we'd love to talk about on the restoration podcast here is uh what to look for when you go out and and find your next project or decide to purchase XYZ tool or machine. And, and, you know, basically everything in your shop has been repurposed from someone or something, you know, previously in history, you know, have a lot of great old machines and, you know, you, you got the, the Carlton radial drill that you finished up. That looks fantastic. You're working on the, uh, the new Haven planer, which is coming along magnificent. And you just got the horizontal boring mill. So when, when you decide to take on a project when you when you go to look at something how do you decide hey this is something that i want to i want to tackle how, how do you do that yeah that well that's a that's a complicated question um you know for me um uh, i think the first thing I, I i have to ask myself is you know is, is this something that i'm looking for is this something that's going to be helpful for my shop and um you know i think early on there was there was a point in time where it's like any time I could find an old machine, I would I would bring it home like a lost puppy. I mean, you know, my wife told you know makes the comment that you know I'm trying to save the world one lathe at a time. And yeah, uh, absolutely, <laughs> I and, love it. And 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 one of the one of the kind of the the problems I've run into is you know where do, where do I, where do you keep all the stuff? And and now now that you know with the YouTube channel and the website. You know, I, I've got kind of got to the point where I don't have to look for machines. They find me now. Uh, um, and I, I've really kind of had to start getting a lot more picky about, you know, what I'm going to take on as a project. There's only just so many hours in the day that I can come out here and work on stuff with a full-time job and everything on the side. So, um, yeah, 
So, but you know, for question number one is, is, is it something that I need? Is it something that I can use? Uh, is it something that, uh, that I, that I really feel like I'll have a need for, you know, if, 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 if not, I probably, I probably don't need to bring it on. I probably don't need to, to bring it into the shop to, to, to work on it. Um, but that's kind of where I'm at in my journey. Now, somebody else getting started into it, you may see something and just jump right on it. And that's fine. Um, you know, the, the next thing you want to look at is, uh, you know, is this machine worth restoring? And the answer to the question is yes. I think all machines are worth restoring, but you, you, you have to, you have to kind of pick your battles too. Obviously, you know, you want to try to find a machine that's in pretty good shape to start with. Uh, I'm the world's worst about taking an absolute basket case and bringing it back. Um, and, and that to me, part of it's the challenge. I, I like to, you know, take something that would just normally go to the junkyard and bring it back just to say, yeah, I can do it. Uh, but at the same time, you need to ask yourself, you know, how many hours is, am I going to have to put in the restore in this thing? Uh, and how much money am I really going to save? In many cases, I don't save any money. I could have gone out and bought a machine that was in working condition, probably cheaper than what I got in the machine plus the time, right, and the right. parts and everything else. But, um, for me, it's, it's a lot of, it's just the, the challenge of doing it. Uh, sure. But yeah, you just, you want to look at the condition and, and, and see if it's something that, you know, within your capabilities to bring back, you know, obviously the machine has, uh, or an item for that matter, if it, if it has some historical significance or, or even a person, personal significance, you know, this was my grandfather's ex and, you know, it's been sitting out in the barn and it's in rough shape, but it belonged to my grandfather and it's part of his legacy and I want to keep it alive. So to me, I mean, that kind of goes right to the top of the list, you know, For sure. I, you know, if, if something like that comes in there, then I'm going to probably jump on it because, because it has that, that personal meaning to me. So, you know, that you have to weigh all these different things in there. Uh, I get a lot of questions and emails, almost overwhelmed to the point, uh, where people send me, Hey, I'm looking at this such and such machine. Is this something uh, that you think I should, should buy or not? And, and. I'm always a little bit reluctant to do that over, over emails and over, you know, usually very poor pictures and bad lighting and weird right. angles. Uh, you know, it's really hard for me to assess a machine that way. Uh, but go look at it and, you know, try it out, you know, turn the handles. If you can power it up, see if it'll power up. And, uh, you know, just because it's in bad shape doesn't mean it's something that you shouldn't necessarily bring home. It just really depends on what you're, needs are what you're willing to take on and uh and kind of go from there uh i know people on all ends of the spectrum but you know you, I, you know one thing i'd say if you're getting started in it you know don't don't start with something that's that you you know pulled out of the scrapyard right before it's about to get crushed because it's been sitting outside for the last 80 years Yep. Uh, you know, start, start with something easy, <laughs> you know, build your confidence up and build your, you know, get your, you know, before you really take on a, a really, something really complicated, but yeah, I, I, I encourage everybody to, you know, if you're really interested in, in the stuff, yeah, just get something and bring it in the shop and start working on it. And, uh, you'll be surprised at what you can do if you, if you, if you really got your heart into it and really want to do it. Yeah, honestly, I, I think that's fantastic advice, you know, just make sure that it's something that you, you, you know, want to use and something that you can take on. And, you know, I, Keith, I can tell from your videos, I, I can sense the, the love that you have for your machines because 
basically there isn't a machine in your shop that you haven't worked on in some manner or fashion to get it, you know, working again or make a part for it or get it up and going again. And I, I could, I could sense the, the, uh, you know, the happiness and the sadness at the same time when you just sold your, your horizontal mill, but you did get the larger version of it. Uh, right. you know, every, every time you, you sell a machine, you're like, Oh wait, I, do I really need to let this go? But you know, I, I'm getting something better to replace it. So it's, it's great to see that. Well, you know, I, I look at, you know, buying and selling machines, uh, really all of my tools, I, I'm just a curator of these things. I mean, they're, you know, most of this stuff is going to be around long after I'm gone. Or at least I hope it is. Uh, and, and a lot of it's going to be around long after I'm gone because of the work that I put into it. But, uh, uh, but it's, it's, I'm just a temporary owner of these things. And, and, and I really, I really want stuff to be passed down to, you know, somebody else. So, um, most, most anything in my shop, you know, if, if the right circumstance came along, I'd probably let it go and bring something else in. Now, usually I'm going to do that when I'm trading up, like I did with that horizontal mill, the, the little Kearney Trekker 2H mill that I had, it was a great mill. It served me well. I had that machine, I think for about 12 years. And, um, but, but it was, you know, when I brought it into the shop, um, it worked, it ran, but you know, that machine has seen a long, hard life. It had a lot of wear in it. It was, uh, it had, you know, made no telling how many parts for production over decades. It was probably in a factory running 24 hours, seven days a week for many years. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it had a lot of wear in it and, and that did have some limitations to me. I was able to work around it for the most part. It's, and it's still a good machine. I'm not knocking it. Uh, but when I, I, I knew I needed a larger one, I've been needing a larger one and I found one that was just an immaculate shape. So, you know, off with the old in with the new, and, for sure. uh, as much as I love that, that, that three H Kearney Trekker I got now, you know, if, uh, if the right. 4-H or whatever came along, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't be opposed to letting it go and, and upgrading go. and bring, bringing in the next one, you know. Let somebody else have it. Absolutely. It's, I love to hear it. Keith, you have a list of, uh, say, your top five tools that you just love to use more than any other? The ones oh, you couldn't learn. You know, <laughs> that's asking the kid what, what his favorite candy is, I'm sure. <laughs> well... You know, you said tools and not machines. So uh, th- we'll there are tools. Don't go on the machines. Okay, you know, th- there there are there are a handful of tools in my shop that absolutely will never leave my possession until you know th- I'm in the ground rotting somewhere. Yeah, but th- they mostly have sentimental value to me. Uh, one of, one of my most prized possessions that I have is a simple ball-peen hammer. There's nothing special about this ball-peen hammer. In fact, there's not even a maker's mark on it. it uh, but it belonged to my grandfather. It, was, it was his ball-peen hammer. He, was, uh, uh, he worked for Latornia, which is a company that made heavy road equipment back in the day. Think of your you know, earth-moving equipment, stuff like that. These guys were the pioneers. These were the guys that invented all this stuff back in the 20s and 30s and 40s uh, before mm-hmm. Caterpillar and John Deere really kind of took those markets. Uh, but he was literally one of their engineers that helped develop all that stuff. And he was a very hands-on guy, mechanic guy. I never knew him. Uh, he died before I was born, but, uh, but that hammer was his hammer. And I, I know that that hammer was his hammer because my dad gave it to me. And, uh, and like I said, that is just one of my prized possessions. Every time I pick it up, I feel a connection uh, to right, my grandfather right. and uh, I, I, I wouldn't part with it. Another one I've got is a, 
is an anvil. It's a 77 pound, uh, Swedish made anvil. And it belonged to my great grandfather. Again, someone who wow. I never met. Uh, but it's, it's, it's something that's, you know, has that family history. And, uh, you know, that, 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 that one will be with me until I'm, I'm dead and gone. And I'm hoping, you know, that I can have someone in the family that I can pass them down to and, and keep those traditions alive. For uh, sure. you know, pretty, pretty much anything else. I, I'd probably, you know, I've got certain tools that I'm, I'm probably more fond of than others, but you know, there, there's nothing that I probably wouldn't, wouldn't let go for under the right circumstances. Um, favorite, favorite, uh, machines. Uh, I, I would say that my, my LeBlanc lathe, or not LeBlanc, but my Monarch lathe, my Monarch uh, Model K lathe that I restored several years ago, it's definitely one of the workhorses in my shop, and uh, I, I put a lot of work and effort into that uh, to get it really back up and running in tip-top shape, and, and right. it's, just a, it's just a joy for me to, to use. It's not perfect by any means. Uh, there, there's still some things I would like to do to that machine further to really kind of take it to the next level. Uh, but, but it is definitely one of my favorites. And, and, uh, even though I've only had it for a really short period of time, probably that K and T, uh, horizontal milling machine, I just, I love horizontal mills. And part of that just goes back to my days working in the machine shop. I did a lot of, a lot of work on in the, in the machine shop, working on a horizontal milling machine. And it's just, it just kind of brings me back to those roots where I started <laughs> in the shop. And, uh, because of that, you know, that's another one that's, it's, it's a favorite of mine. Fantastic. Yeah, that, that's, that's great. Um, so, you know, you have, you have your sentimental tools, you have, you know, favorite machines, and obviously you've done tons and tons of restoration on, on these machines. Um, what tool or, you know, maybe a couple tools do you see yourself reaching to time and time again when you do these restorations? Because we, uh, earlier in an episode, we gave, um, a list of common tools that, that you always have to have when you're doing a restoration. What, what do you find yourself using that is, you know, can't live without doing a restoration? Yeah. Wow. So I'm just sitting here looking around the shop, trying to, trying to think, uh, probably one of the things that I, that gets used all the time and something that maybe a lot of people don't really think about is, is, is some of my lead hammers. So I've got, right. you know, some of these lead hammers and it's kind of a dead blow hammer. It's not something that'll, uh, it's soft. The, the they're designed to, when they, when they wear out, you just pour a new one. I've got some molds to repour them. Uh, but the nice thing about that is, is if something stuck or whatever, I can get that lead hammer out and I can beat on it and I'm not going to tear it up more than likely, you know, yeah, you can still hit something hard enough to break it, I guess, even with the lead hammer. But, uh, you know, that, that is, that is one thing that there's, there's rarely a day that goes by out here that I don't, I don't use one of those lead hammers. And, and that's something that's probably maybe not be on top of everybody's list. Maybe not be something everybody even has, but, uh, something that I find, uh, invaluable doing, doing restoration works. Uh, my word, I don't know. I'm sitting here just trying to think, you know, pry bars, you know, taking things apart. You always needing to, I've got a whole assortment of different size pry bars and stuff. And again, getting leverage, trying to get things taken apart. Ah, Wow. I, I, yeah. I, I, I know that's a, that's, that's a big question. I understand. I've got so many tools. How, how do I pick out the ones that are mine? I, yeah, I, I, got a, I got a specific one. How, how about this? If you have uh, lots of surface rust and it's yeah. not a big flat surface, would you rather go chemicals or would you rather go brush wire? Um, 
I prefer going chemical as much as possible, and uh, I've become a really big fan of, of Vaporust. Uh, right. I've got a, in fact, I built a huge vat, and uh, I probably got a hundred gallons of Vaporust. I, I did that as part of my Stoker engine restoration, so that I could do really big parts. Uh, but but I, I really I really like uh, that type of a product because it well, number one, it's just so much easier than. And, and two, you know, a, a wire wheel or even a wire brush, it is still abrasive. Uh, sometimes that's what you got to do. Um, but I'm, I'm particularly on machine surfaces. I'm just always a little bit reluctant to get a wire wheel out there and go uh, wire wheeling on, on a precision surface, a uh, machine way or something like that. Again, sometimes you just don't have a choice. Uh, but uh, the, the chemical rust removers really just kind of it make that job a lot easier and i think it's a lot easier uh on the metal uh for where possible but sure. don't get me wrong uh a wire wheel on an angle grinder <laughs> yeah that's that's something that gets gets used a lot in my shop uh but but i do prefer the chemical route where possible yeah i i, I admit that that was a loaded question because you know i always tell my wife it ultimately comes down to um, you know, having the right tool for whatever specific job you happen to be doing. And I think that's why so many of us end up with so many tools, because when you go to do a job, that's when you find out what tools you don't have. And as many tools as I have, it seems like every time I start a project, I, I need, a, need a new tool and, and not want a new tool. I, I need a new tool just to do that job. Uh, you know, part, part of the, part of the, the challenge of doing restoration is figuring out how to get things done with what you got. Uh, but sometimes, yep. sometimes you just need the right tool. Have you Absolutely. ever restored a, a tool specifically because you needed to, to restore the next? Oh tool? yeah, absolutely. Uh, or restore a machine to, to go to the next one. I, I can't, I can't do this. You got to have this before you can do that. So, uh, and, and tools too. Uh, I, I've, in fact, uh, uh, something that comes to mind, I've got a little tool that's made for, um, it's, refacing uh, valve seats and doing a lot of these steam engines and stuff like that. Uh, you need to redo valve seats and stuff pretty commonly. And, and I found a, a, a valve resurfacer and, but I had to do a bunch of work to that tool before I could actually start using it. So that, that good, good example right there. Let's talk for a minute about your YouTube channel, Keith. You've come a very long way since that first video, the uh, James S. Graham swing saw back many years <laughs> ago. Um, what was the inspiration to start the channel and, um, and what do you, what do you do to think about new content? What do you, how do you come up with new ideas for videos? Well, you know, the, the YouTube thing, I, again, I, I wish I could say I just had this grand plan and everything was written out ahead of time, but it really just kind of happened. Uh, and a, a lot of it kind of, again, goes back to the forum days. Uh, when YouTube came along, you know, I'd be working on projects and I always tried to document the projects I was working on, on the discussion forums, taking pictures and writing up what was going on. But somebody would just have a question. Well, how, how did you do that? And, you know, I, I finally got to the point where I had a little cheap video camera or something and YouTube was around. So I said, I'm going to go shoot a little quick video, put it up there. And, and honestly, you know, the first couple of videos that I did that, um, and, and, and honestly too, a lot of those videos aren't even on my site anymore. They, they were so, so poor compared to what I'm doing now. I actually deleted a lot of stuff, <laughs> sure. uh, but, but a lot of it, you know, I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to upload this and the 10 people who are following this forum are going to watch this video and that'll be the end of it. 
And it's like, where are all these people coming from? I've got, you know, a thousand views on this video. And wow, I've got 10,000 views on this video. Uh, And I don't even know who these people are. You know, it really (laughs) just kind of, it kind of took me by surprise. And, um, you know, I I, I did that for a while. Uh, Really, my inspiration to really kind of get serious into the YouTube stuff is that that I got to watching uh, Keith Finner. Uh, over at Turn Right Machine Works, and oh, great channel, great channel, great channel, and you know, um, and, and it's, it's ironic. Keith and I have become pretty good friends uh, over over the, the years. But you know, when I was first watching him, I was kind of drawn to him because a lot of the work that he did in his shop was so similar to the work that that we used to do in the shop that I worked in. Uh, we were probably a little bit larger shop, but very similar, you know, type setup machines that he was using and. The problem solving that it goes into fixing those everyday little things that that, that he's working on his videos, I, I was drawn to that, and I was watching him. and And one day I'm like, you know what? I've I've really already got a couple of videos out that done pretty well, and you know I, I think I can do this. And uh, so he was really kind of my inspiration uh, to to start doing some videos. And and fortunately for me, uh, very early on. Uh, when I was working on the, the planar matcher restoration at the museum, which was probably my first big project on YouTube. In fact, I was really already somewhat into that project before I started doing YouTube videos. Uh, but, uh, there was a, a, a part that I needed on there that had some curved surfaces on it. I couldn't do it on a regular lathe. And I knew that Keith Finner had that tracing attachment on his lathe. I really liked the concept that he was doing it on a manual machine, even though it was a pretty complicated thing. You know, tracing attachments are pretty much obsolete in the day of CNC world. But I really liked the fact that he was still using that. And I reached out to Keith and said, hey, can you help me with this? And, you know, I kind of started the project. I made some wooden patterns, had some castings made. I partially machined them. Uh, then I sent them to him, and and he actually curved those contours for or, or machined those contours for me, uh, and that really gave a big kickstart to my channel because you know he, we were collaborating on YouTube, uh, right. which something anybody that's getting into doing YouTube videos, I highly recommend that you try to collaborate with somebody out there that's just a bigger channel than you are, uh, yeah. because it just it helps you really kind of give you exposure and and. Uh, uh, Keith Finner, uh, really kind of helped me kind of get into that world. And he was really my inspiration to start with. And, and of course, over the years, I watched lots of different guys out there now and, and all of them have inspired me in different ways, but he was probably the original one for me. I, I love the, the relationship that you and, uh, this old Tony have. It's just it's fun <laughs> to watch. How did, how did that get started? Uh, yeah, well, I've been watching his channel for a long time. In fact, I, I, he's probably, he's one of my, my favorite YouTubers. He's just so entertaining, you know, uh, I, I can't, you know, I'm not, I'm not knocking him by any means, but you know, he's, he's probably not the greatest machinist in the world. He, I mean, he, he, he's good. Don't get me wrong. He's, he's adequate, but, but, but what funny. I really like about him is he, he's so entertaining. He's so funny. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, he actually reached out to me to, do a little cameo appearance in one of his videos. And, uh, and I, I really enjoyed doing that. That was a lot of fun. Uh, so he awesome. in, well, we'll, we'll have to have, uh, we'll have to have this old Tony on to, to get his retort. To see. <laughs> <laughs> that's, great. that's great. Tell us. Um, so, you know, people have seen you on your YouTube channel. They, they know that you do a lot of metalworking, you restore these tools. Um, and some people might think that, that like, this is what you do, like this is your job, but it, it's not. 
um, you, you have a, a, a nine to five job that you do every day. And um, tell us a little bit about that. What is what is your day job? Yeah, well, you know, first off, a lot of people think I'm either out here working in my shop or either I work at the museum, one or the other, because so much of my content has come from those two locations. But no, uh, you know, I mentioned early on that that part of the reason why I got a job working in the machine shop is I wanted to go to college. And uh, my, my really what I wanted to do is I wanted to become a scientist. And uh, that is exactly what I did. Uh, so I went to school. I actually work in the field of agriculture. Uh, I'm, I'm an agronomist by training. I got a graduate degree in crop physiology, which is wow. like plant biochemistry, you know, really high-end fancy science stuff, which uh, I get all geeked out about. Uh, but, but I do. I work as, a, I work as an agricultural scientist. Uh, I work for one of the big large ag companies. Uh, and uh, basically, um, we've got a portfolio of products, and, and I'm kind of our technical expert on all those products uh, for the, the southeastern United States. Uh, I work with our sales team. Uh, when they have questions or problems, they reach out to me, and I try to help them out. Uh, I do research trials. Uh, do some myself. Most of I'm kind of to the point now where most of my research <laughs> uh, that I do, I'm actually contracting out to uh, different universities. I work with the University of Georgia, University of Florida, and Auburn University primarily, and uh, get them to do research trials for me, testing our products, see how they work. And uh, we're basically using that data to make better recommendations to our farmers on how to use our, our, our products and coming up with those local recommendations. So uh, that's my that's my real job. And it's a pretty, pretty time consuming and demanding job in itself. But my, my passion is really working out here in the shop and uh, and sure. working on these machines and, 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 you know, doing this stuff out here. Yeah. And I, I know you have. Um... You say it uh, several times in your videos. You have, you know, busy times during the year where you have, you know, more meetings or more traveling that you have to do for for your work. Um, so the the majority of of the time that you spend in your shop is just in the evenings on the on on the weekends, correct? Yeah. So really, probably Saturday is my big day. I try to spend as many Saturdays as I can in the shop, and uh, you know, fortunately for me, you know, my my children are pretty much grown and out on their own, so I'm not having to. To babysit kids and stuff like that. I remember years ago, it really was challenging to spend a Saturday in the shop when I had young kids. Right. But uh, it's a lot easier now. But Saturday's my big, big, big shop day, and and I'd say most Saturdays, uh, at, l at least part of the day, if not all the day, I'm out in the shop. But yeah, I'm also out here, you know, after work in the evenings, and uh, you know, and, and and honestly, there are times of the year where there's just not a whole lot going on at work. Uh, there's not a whole lot of that, but there's some, and. Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate that, you know, I, I basically work from home. Uh, I got a big area that I cover, but I, it's not like I go into a, an, an office every day. I'm, my office is uh, uh, in the house. So, you know, it's right down the Great. hall from the bedroom. Uh, but, you know, there are definitely some times of the year when I can slip out here and, and work on some stuff. If the phone rings or an email comes in, I take care of it. But uh, uh, I can do a little bit of stuff, but not, not a whole lot. Usually I'm, I'm pretty busy Monday through Friday. Uh, with sure. real job. Fantastic. So I noticed online, sometimes you mention it in your videos, uh, sometimes it's on the website, but uh, every now and again you host different classes or uh, different restoration projects where you bring people in. Uh, you care to share more about that process when you decide to pick a machine or uh, work on something as a group? Yeah, so you know we've done that as far as like group projects, we've done some out at the museum. I've actually done, I had a couple of times had people come into the shop here and help me work on, uh, something in particular. 
usually, you know, I, I, I try to, I try to, you know, think of something where I can use multiple people, you know, and really be able to keep people busy. Uh, you know, last thing you want to do is bring a bunch of people in and have them standing around twiddling their thumbs. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's no fun for anybody. You know, if you need two people and you bring 10 people in, you know, you're, uh, that's just not a lot of fun, but, but yeah, there's been several times we've done that and it's really worked out good. Uh, I guess, you know, some of the things to keep in mind, if you, if you try to do that is, you know, think about how many people you need and don't get too big of a crowd there. You know, don't be afraid to, to tell some folks, no, we got all the help we need. Um, because, you know, if you, if you need 10 people and a hundred people show up, well, what ends up happening is no work gets done, (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) you know? Uh, so, you know, that, that, that's one thing. And and sometimes it's hard to to tell people no, particularly when, when, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of gotten to the point I have a following now. So, you know, I, 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 I'll just say up front, like, Hey, I need like 10 people to come in and, you know, we're going to create a list and the first 10 people, that's it. Uh, you know, so keep that in mind. As far as the classes go, uh, uh, we've done several of the Richard King scraping classes out here at my shop over the years. I think I've hosted three or I think four of those now, and I've actually helped uh, with a couple of those other classes in other locations as well. And uh, those have worked out really good. Uh, Again, you know, it's kind of a limited size thing. And and, and honestly, the classes is something that I really want to do more of. I want to really bring in some more, you know, like weekend classes and stuff and and bring people and give them a chance to come into the shop. Uh, But as you guys probably know, there's a there's a lot of work that goes in teaching a class. And it's not only the, the, the days that you're teaching the class, there's a lot of prep time, making sure you got everything ready, you know, kind of having a, a game plan on how you're going to go about doing it. Um, and, and honestly with my work schedule, the way it is, I really haven't been able to do as much of that as I, I, I would like to, but that is one of the things that, you know, when I'm kind of looking at my, you know, five, 10 year plan, uh, hopefully at, at some point in time, I'm going to be able to maybe hopefully retire a little bit early from my job and, and, and maybe try to do that, you know, bring some people in, have some classes, uh, and, you know, use that as a, as a, as a revenue source, you know, keep it affordable, but at the same time, you know, make it worth your time to do it. Absolutely. Is there, is there a type of class that you wish you had the time to, uh, to pull off? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I get people all the time that are asking me to do classes on things, but I mean, I think just like bringing some, you know, a handful of people in and just doing a, the basics of using a metal lathe or the basics of using a milling machine, you know, uh, a lot of people get this machinery and they just don't know where to start. Uh, and, and, and a lot of it's not that hard, but, you know, you really kind of just need that first little bit of introduction to it to kind of get you kick-started. And, uh, you know, I'd like to do some of that and then maybe, you know, do some more specific things as well. But, but that's definitely two things that I've definitely thought about is having a, a introduction to a metal lathe. I think would be a great class, you know, and I, I think you could probably just, you know, kind of after you do your introduction, come in and say, all right, we're going to learn, we're going to have a class just on how to cut single point, point threads on a lathe. And, you know, that's something that for a new machinist, everybody is just so intimidated by cutting threads on a, on a metal lathe. Uh, sure. and, but at the same time, 
uh, once you do it three or four times, it's like there's really not that much. It's not that hard, but it, the the hard part is just going out there and and, and trying it, you know, and 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 not sure. being afraid to make a mistake, uh, you know, and right and and have to to start over. You probably don't want to. Your first job probably does first thread cutting doesn't need to be on a real real part. You just need to go out there and practice some first. Yeah. Uh, but but it, you know, but but I I think that'd be cool maybe to come in and have a, a class on how to do something like that. That would be um, great. Yeah. Excellent yeah. resource. I mean, I, I've actually got a list of stuff that I've, I've been, I've thought about over the years of, of doing classes on and, and, uh, and I'd, I'd love to do that. But right now, like I said, with my full-time job, it's just, it's just not something that I'm, I'm quite ready to jump into, but, but that is something that I really want to do. Yeah, we sure, we really hope sure. that that comes to fruition for you. And it sounds like that would be, you know, another great, resource you you're you're a man of many resources and you know we we really appreciate you uh you know taking time out of your day to come talk with us and share your knowledge and and um uh, about the resources that you have and your plans for the future because it's it's really been a benefit uh, and i know like you said there have been many people who have helped you along the way um but you, you've been kind of the, the catalyst that has brought a lot of elements together and uh provided great resources for a community that that I've grown to love and I know that we all love uh, the same. Yeah. Well, my, my biggest advice to people that if, you know, doing restoration work, doing machine work, you know, any, any kind of, uh, you know, woodworking or metalworking, whatever is just get out there and try it. Don't be afraid to try something and don't be afraid to make a mistake and mess up. Uh, I, th I think that people are just so worried about failing that they never actually start something. And I can promise you, man, I, I have screwed up so many things. And, and you know, you, you don't learn how to do stuff without making mistakes. And you learn from your mistakes, you know. So to me, uh, uh, people, I, I've had people, I've, I've messed up, you know, something on a video or whatever. And like, how did you, you know, keep your composure? Well, yeah, sometimes yeah. you get mad and throw a wrench across the shop. But at the end of the day, mm -hmm. you step back and say, okay, what did I learn from this? And, you know, and, and in, in the end, it's, it's those mistakes that really make you a better machinist or a better woodworker or a better whatever, uh, take advantage of them. They're, they're, they're not bad. Uh, sure. you know, anybody that's been successful, uh, has had failures. Uh, so don't be afraid to go out there and, 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 and fail before you succeed. You know, it's, it's not something to be, be worried about. Sure. Yeah. Fan, fantastic Everybody. advice. Everybody. David, David knows nothing of failure. No, not <laughs> at all. Not we, we've all failed at, at, at things and, you know, made mistakes and, you know, sometimes we, we wish we wouldn't have made those mistakes, but we definitely learn from them and uh, we, we get better for next time. Uh, so one thing we do want to make sure, um, it, you know, many of us know already, but we want to make sure that uh, we give you a chance to tell us uh, where we can find you. You know, tell us what your social media is and uh, your YouTube channel. Please let the viewers know uh, where they can find you. Yeah, so, uh, you know, probably YouTube's my biggest thing. So if you go to YouTube, you can search for either my name, Keith Rucker, or uh, VintageMachinery.org. Either one will find me on YouTube. Uh, and uh, I, I try to do at least one or two videos a week. It's, I, I tell people what I'm doing videos on is whatever I'm working on in the shop. It's just whatever kind of comes in the door. Uh, and and I, I try really hard to, to get some fresh content out and, and really keep that YouTube channel going pretty hard uh i'm also uh active over on facebook and instagram on and and both of those well on facebook i have a personal account plus there's one for vintage machinery uh and uh you're welcome to 
to, to ask for a friend on either one of them. Uh, pretty much everything that gets posted on the Vintage Machinery uh, page, I usually post over on my personal page. But my personal page is going to have some personal stuff on it as well. Uh, but either one of those sites will, will uh, you can look at on on uh, Facebook and then on on Instagram. Uh, it's just Vintage Machinery. Uh, you can search for Vintage Machinery and that'll pull me up there as well. And uh, I, I try, I, I, and, and sometimes I'm I'm not as good at it as I need to. I get working on a on a project and I get focused on the project and I forget to stop and take pictures along the way. But I, I try to I try to you know post what whatever I'm working on in the shop while I'm working on it on on Instagram. And a lot of times on my Instagram account, uh, you know, you kind of get a sneak peek as to what's going to be maybe in the next video. And, and there's a lot of stuff I do in the shop that, that I, I don't shoot a video on for whatever reason. I'm in a hurry right. or, or uh, I've, I've already done 10 videos on this. I really just don't really want to do it again. But uh, so there, there is a lot of stuff that, that gets put on the, the Instagram that you may not see on my YouTube channel. For sure. Thank you. We appreciate that. And um, we certainly want to respect your time here. Most of our um, interviews hover around an hour, but we, you know, we would love uh, to potentially have you on for a second interview, maybe in the future, because we, we could talk, talk to you for probably days straight. And you, you, we really appreciate you coming on and, and your, your wealth of knowledge. So we, we thank you very yeah. much for that. Keith. Uh, one thing we always ask is, do you have a most memorable uh, restoration project? Oh, yeah. Wow. There's been so many. <laughs> uh, you know, probably, and we talked about it a little bit earlier in the video, was that, that really that first project that I did, uh, working in the machine shop thirty over 30 years ago, doing that little uh, post drill. Uh, even though I don't have it anymore, there I learned so much doing that. Uh, so much of it I learned just by trial and error and and making mistakes and uh, you know getting getting the job done. Uh, but but that is definitely one that I really think about uh, as being probably one of my most memorable because, like I said, it really was that it was that one project that kind of kicked me off down this road into into you know where where this journey's kind of taken me over the last 30 something years cool Keith, real quick before uh, we let you go I, I wanted to ask you about Rucker Tool Company that <laughs> with, uh, with Clark Easterling who we're all big fans of down at the Windy Hill Foundry um, I'm looking at your pictures right now on Instagram and they look fantastic uh, when do you think those might be available for purchase or are they going or what's what can you tell us about that project so yeah, I, you know, I started out with uh, making a little uh, straight edge. We had some castings made. The straight edge is a tool that's used when you're rebuilding machines for scraping or whatever. It's a reference surface that you you get really perfectly flat. You test it on your surface plate, then you can take the machine and use it for uh, uh, you know as a reference surface there. And I wanted a small one for like doing little lathe compounds and couldn't find any little small ones like that. So I said, what the heck? I'll, I'll just make them. You know, I've, I've gotten to be pretty good at pattern making and doing casting works for doing all these restoration things. So I, I designed one. I say I designed it. I, I, I kind of got some help to do the first one or whatever. To uh, It was a long process of trial and error and uh, reached out to, to Clark over at Windy Hill Foundry and he started casting that little nine inch straight edge. And, and those are actually available right now. In fact, if you go over to 
uh, my website, we've got a store on there. It's a store at vintagemachinery.org. Uh, and you can purchase the nine inch uh, castings right now. It's for raw casting. You have to machine it yourself and do it yourself. I'm not going to do the work for you because uh, if, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, if you if you if you need a straight edge to do scraping, you need to know how to scrape. And actually, scraping a straight edge is a great project to learn how to scrape. So I really want it yeah. to be a project. Uh, but we've we've got the nine inch one. Um, we're actually very close to having uh, the twelve inch version of that straight edge available. Uh, I've actually got some prototype castings in from Clark and. Uh, we're kind of in that stage right now of him kind of getting geared up and ready to make a production run of those. So I'm hoping by the first of the year, we'll have a 12 inch version of that straight edge. And, and I've got some other, uh, other little tools, uh, that, that I'm looking at, at doing as well. And I don't want to let the cat out of the bag quite yet, but right. I'm hoping, hoping that over the next couple of years, we're constantly adding some, uh, some new pieces of that collection of, uh, tools. Fantastic. Cool. So exciting. Yeah, Clark, Clark's a great resource to have, you know, having a, a foundry that you can send stuff off to, you know, that doesn't require you to have, uh, you know, 10,000 pounds of work to do uh, is great to have. Well, one thing doing a lot of this uh, restoration work and, and, and one thing that I'm really ticky about is, is I won't, if I'm restoring an antique machine, I, I want it to be as close to original as possible. And, and when parts are broken or missing, particularly when you don't have the original part to copy, it can be challenging sometimes. But, uh, you know, I, I have learned how to make patterns and reproduce castings because that's what most of these parts were made out of. I get asked all the time, well, couldn't you just welded up a piece of steel and done it? Like, yeah, you could have, but it wouldn't have been right. It wouldn't have been right. like the original. I mean, maybe not right is not the right. I think it's a an acceptable solution if you're looking for a functional uh, restoration, but, but I'm looking for a, a, a really a historically accurate restoration right. as much as possible. So I try to, right. I try to really hard to keep things as original as possible. And, uh, you know, having a foundry that you can work with, uh, to do that has really been a, a big help to me. Uh, when I started doing casting stuff, I, I used cattail foundry, which is a, Foundry up in Pennsylvania is, is ran by an Amish family. They do a great job. I highly recommend them. Uh, but I guess if I have a, a complaint with Cattail, it's not the quality of their work. It's it's they're Amish and they're they're just hard to, to get a hold of. I mean, you, you, it's difficult. I mean, you can right, call. Right. They, they got a phone number, but you leave a message and you might get a call back. They they don't do email. You know, they're 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 hard to communicate with. And uh, I found Clark in uh, over Mississippi and. Uh, he has been just absolutely great to work with, uh, and and he's someone I can communicate with easily. And um, you know, I, I really have switched most of my foundry work over to him uh, since I found him, uh, and and we work together very well. Awesome. awesome. All right, Keith, thank you so much for coming on to the Restoration Podcast. We greatly appreciate it. Our listeners out in listener land, make sure that you can find him on uh, YouTube as Keith Rucker, vintagemachinery.org, as well as his website, vintagemachinery.org. And you can contact us at the Restoration Podcast at our uh, Instagram at the Restoration Podcast, as well as our Gmail, which is the Restoration Podcast at gmail.com. And this has been the Restoration Podcast with James, Evan, and Dave, where we restore yesterday's tools for the craftsmen of today. Thank you, Thanks guys. Again, thank, you. thank you, Keith. This thank was you guys. awesome. I loved it. Yeah. Have a great one, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. See you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.
you responded saying that you, you'd love to be on the podcast, I kind of had this Wayne's World moment going, oh, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. <laughs> you know, one of the really weird things about this whole YouTube thing is, is a lot of people look at me like I'm a celebrity. And yep. I, I, I do not feel like a celebrity. I mean, I'm just this old guy that goes out and works in his <laughs> shop. And I'm... I'm crazy enough or stupid enough to, to make YouTube videos where people can criticize me. That's what it feels like a lot of times. I know there's a lot right, of people, right. there's more people out there that don't criticize it. Sometimes when you look at the comments, you know, you got a hundred that are telling you're doing a great job and one guy that wants to throw stones at you. And the only one you remember is the one that wants to throw stones at you. That's a fact. But, uh, but, but anyway, I, I, I do not feel like I'm a celebrity. I, 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 I'm just a regular old guy that, that just, uh, like I said, I'm just crazy enough to, put my name out there and and hang my hat on stuff 